You are listening to Secret History with me, Matthew Blackman. And me, Nick Dahl. So just to get up to speed with where we were with the story, there was the evil governor, Willem Adrian van der Stel. He had been corrupt and used the company's money to his own advantage and created this incredible farm and was living at large, I guess. And what happened was there were these free burgers with Adam Tusk kind of at the head who had sent what was called a memorial, basically a letter of complaint to the directors of the company in Amsterdam. Willem Adrian had, to put it mildly, lost his shit about it and he had gone out and started the arrests. He had arrested Tuss and he had taken the most incriminating piece of evidence of all. He had taken away Adam Tuss's writing table and this would be a disaster for the Freeburgers. So let's pick the story up with the writing table. And so what was the what was the writing desk? What's um What's its importance in the story? Well, I mean, you've just got to take yourself back 300 years. Um, you know, that's like taking his all his laptops and cell phones. And they obviously pulled out all the drawers. And in them, they found the full memorial. But they still didn't find the signatures because it was a draft. The signed copy still hadn't turned up. So they had the main activist there. They realized that the, or at least the scribe, was, was discovered um seemingly the main the main man but they didn't know how far it extended into the freeburger population and and how many people had signed it no they so they, they didn't. but they had a pretty good idea so they they just started um arresting people well that's worked for people both in the past and in the present so you know he's 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 finding his dictatorial chops he's doing as far as dictators and corruption is concerned he's he's probably doing the right thing yeah no, he's he's doing fantastically well i mean he, a wonderful yeah. job so so tuss he said fine you know you've got me um i'll gladly tell my side of the story in a court of law yeah so i mean that that didn't suit tuss tuss wants a tuss wants a proper court of he law does. which willem adrian isn't exactly allowing him to have no so they they threw him and and several of the other prominent burgers or, or a few dozen of the other prominent burgers in in various dungeons in the castle they were watched over by soldiers with drawn swords day and night. Um, the chimneys of their cells were walled up. Their meat and drink were examined. Paper and pen and ink were refused. Them, their wives were seldom admitted. Yeah, and um, in, in this kind of situation, Adam Tuss, for one, spent um, 13 and a half months. Um, when his young son died he wasn't allowed out of prison even to see the corpse let alone attend the funeral um the only time he was allowed out of his cell was to appear before a commission led by our friend beelzebub okay yeah because beelzebub was a um he was a landrost right so he had some kind of legal status in the in the i mean it wasn't really a colony but in the in the in the area so Adam Tuss is put on trial, and what does this trial really look like? So the main guy who's trying him is um, is one of Willem Adrian's besties, and um, what does the court what does the court look like? Yeah, so it, it took place in a room in in the castle that you can still visit today. Um, everyone on the commission was handpicked by Willem Adrian, 
and and the best part is so so Willem Adrian decided that he himself would not be a commissioner because that would look bad. Instead, he kept track of proceedings from behind a thin door through which it was possible to hear every word. And here's a nice quote. Um, when any difficulty arose, the commissioners and the prosecutor would step aside with no attempt at concealment to consult with the governor. The governor decided the point, and the commission would take action in terms of the decision given from behind the door. So that the commission, apart from its essential illegality, was nothing but a puppet show. It did nothing. It was the governor who determined everything, and who directed the entire proceeding. Such being the character of the court, Van der Stel had succeeded in creating the following position. The burghers had impeached the governor, but the governor, in his single person, was at once prosecutor and judge in the case against himself. And even during this, you know, like kangaroo court scenario, um, there are various, you know, one one guy refuses to testify. He is sent to the Donkachat, which um, is a pretty terrible place. Um, if you ever go to the castle, I think they still put the tourists in the in the Donkachat. It's it's not pleasant. Um, so pro- probably has a pretty unpleasant time, and I think he's threatened with the rack and all kinds of things. But eventually, Adam Tuss and and the rest of them they realise that Willem Adrian's actually got their number. Yeah. So this this guy who spent twenty seven days in the Donkerkut was then brought out and given a five hour examination, during which he nearly collapsed from physical exhaustion. Then he finally agreed to answer the questions and ultimately recanted his accusations. This was, I think, his fifth appearance before the tribunal, the first four he refused. Um, and as soon as he'd signed the document, Willem Adrian called the company surgeon to tend to the seriously ill prisoner, because he didn't want his prisoner to die in custody. So yeah, this is, this is how he operated. Um... Adam Tuss even recanted his accusation eventually, you know, after being tortured, basically. So he said that... And, yeah. yeah, and Adam Tuss says that he um, he makes this kind of confession, which is obviously just basically written for him, and he yeah. probably has to sign it. And he says something like it was, um, you know, he objected to what the, the governor was doing in a, in, in a mad fit of passion, and that it was an act of madness that had driven him to um, write this memorial rather than the actual... Um, yes, and he, he is sorry for it from the bottom of his heart that he wrote and put it down. Yes, sounds sounds very genuine. And what is interesting is that that is obviously sent off to Amsterdam, um, but the um, and it's sent off to Amsterdam in a sort of slightly ludicrous manner. In that Willem Adrian suddenly he's got what he's wanted. He's got these kind of con- fake kind of confessions out of these guys who did the memorial, and he says, right, you know. Lads, it's all it's all fine and well. Um, I'm going to send your recantations to Amsterdam. And what happens? Well, the, the funny thing is... He makes one he fatal does. mistake. He allows four of the burghers, including one of the head honchos, not Adam Tuss, but one of the other big ones, to join, to go on the same ship to Amsterdam to plead, plead their case in person. But he, he thinks that they're not going to go. He thinks like, oh well, they'll never go because no, he like, thinks that the, their yeah, wives are gonna, the gr- their wives are gonna. No, he complain. thinks that the groans and lamentings and tears of their women folk would would keep them at the cave. 
but they they don't they get they on, get on the boat, they get on the and, boat. And, the, and this is the, the funniest scene i think perhaps of the whole saga as the boat sort of the sails are filling up with wind and it's making out of table bay Willem adrian has this moment where he realizes oh my god you know what have i done that they're going to amsterdam they're going to completely skewer me and he gets onto a small boat and tries to catch up with the ship that's sailing off up the west coast of africa but you know he they've got a head start they're in a bigger ship and and he just can't catch up and he's he's forced to go back to table bay and and wait and see what happens what the tribunal decides so Willem Adrian is left on his little dinghy frustrated and realizes that he has made a mistake quite a severe mistake because these guys get to Amsterdam um Amsterdam gets the whole sort of package and they make a judgment call on on what has been going on in the Cape and they realize that these recantations of Tuss and the other lads are clearly have come out of forced confessions right um yeah exactly um so they they find in in the burgers favor they um unanimously acquit the burgers of sedition conspiracy or treason and they they declared the actions of Willem Adrian unjust um now there they were you know so Obviously, they had the whole package of evidence, the Burgers complaint, Willem Adrian's certificate of good conduct, um, the recantations, the depositions, all of that. They had all that evidence, but they also had, and this is something you mentioned earlier, there was a sort of global climate that um, no decision is ever made devoid of context. And um, one of the things they were very worried about was Willem Adrian spending weeks on end in and not guarding the Cape, because um, they were quite scared that French ships might attack the Cape. Yeah, so they and were the fact, at, you, yeah. they were at war with the French, or exactly. one of those endless kind of wars that the, that the Europeans used to have, like the 80 Years' War and the 100 Years' War and the Seven Years' War, and they were constantly warring, and they were at war with the French, and they realized that there were a whole lot of admittedly disgruntled French refugees down in the Cape, the French Huguenots, and that these guys might end up siding with the French, and that wasn't probably too good a thing for them. So they had to they had to shore up their their defences essentially, and and um, one of those moves was to 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 give the Freeburgers back what they'd lost. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the other factor is that you know the Cape itself maybe wasn't that important, but it was vital to the ships that came from the east and those ships that came from the east were the, the only reason for the dutch like having any power in the world you know that they, they were the reason for all dutch wealth so so that was a big deal so what do they do with there's this whole issue of there's there's this governor out there and there's fairgelegh and um what do they decide so they the report from the the lord 17 which was like the sort of board of directors of the VOC, um, ordered that Willem Adrian, his two IC, Samuel Elsafir, the clergyman, Pietrus Calden, and of course, Beelzebub, should all be recalled. That said, um, you know, some things, the more things change, the more they stay the same. All of them retained their salaries and rank until they'd had a chance to defend themselves back home. 
And oh yeah, France van der Stel, um, Willem Adrian's Freeburger brother, was also ordered to leave company territory immediately. Um, the report continued that Ferkeleken should be returned to the company. But strangely, this is very similar to Nkandler, um, the buildings on Ferkeleken were Willem Adrian's. And the proceeds of their sale should go to Willem Adrian. I'm not sure why, because all of them we've just seen, all the materials and, and laborers and stuff were not his. Anyway, that's what they found. Um, and then it I also guess made a, a sense of, I guess there's a sense of, um, like with Zuma is, and like with all of these corrupt people, you know, they are basically in the system and they don't want to punish them so badly that, um, you know, people are afraid of working in the system. And if they crack down too much, if they crack down on one, you know, they've got a, an entire company full of these guys, you know, skimming off the top. Um, they want to at least give them a, a chance to survive. And they probably, you know, they, they come from the same class, right? The same group of people. None of these corrupt guys, you know, ever, as we well know, you know, face the music properly because yeah. their, their mates are in charge. Indeed. So, yeah. And, and then the report also ruled on the burgers. Um, anyone who'd been because oh, i didn't actually mention earlier he banished quite a few burgers from the cape so all of them should go back to their homes at the company's expense all those who were in prison should be liberated immediately and even compensated for their suffering um and this is quite an important point for to sort of prevent it happening again in the future the company um made it clear that company officials could not own or lease land or trade in cattle, corn or wine, either directly or indirectly. So this is something that the burghers didn't, weren't actually aware of when they made their complaints. And it, it said in black and white, only the free burghers were allowed to profit from farming at the Cape. So this okay, is like so they've set up a resounding victory. I mean, if you're looking at, you know, like, you know, CNN looking at court cases and things like that. This would be like the burghers got everything they wanted and more. But it was 1706, so they didn't know that they had got it until quite a while later. Yeah, so there's, I think it takes six months for the ship to get from Amsterdam to Cape Town to inform the governor that he has lost his case. And, and then he does a bit of hanging around but he's basically cleared out and he returns yeah. to Amsterdam. Yeah, so he, do, he does more than a bit of hanging around. So he learns his fate on the 17th of April, 1707. Remember, he's still on full salary until he's had a chance to defend himself. Um, and he finally leaves the Cape on the 23rd of April, 1708. So a full year after he heard about it and, and 18 months after he was he was dismissed. And then there's still the ship journey, so a few more months. When he finally got back to Amsterdam, he was dismissed from the company's service. So that's when he stopped earning his salary. And he goes on an attempt to um, clear his name, but he does it in a, in a very kind of modern way of trying to clear your name. You sort of write a, your your true story, your secret history of events. I'm going to tell all document 
um, he goes about sort of funding this this document. What is it called again? I can't remember. So it's called the it Porta de Duxi, the... the the short explanation, and it's uh, three hundred and four pages long, um, explaining what a wonderful chap he is. Um, and he funded this partially on the proceeds of of Therkelepin. Um, you know, obviously he'd also become a rich man before then, and he'd had a few years of earning salary for no work. But yeah, we've actually got the exact details of, of the sale of Berkeleyken. So Berkeleyken was split into four. Lord Lawrence, Fred Morgan, Sir Berkeleyken, and the town of Somerset West, because they didn't want anyone to own that much land, basically. And the manor house was supposed to be broken down to avoid setting an example of ostentation. The wholesale netted 24,400 guilder, of which 20,000 went to the company and the rest to Villa Montreal. Um, now we know, it seems, that they ordered that the, the manor house be um, broken down, and for, for several hundred years, that was, everyone assumed that it happened. But in the 1990s, I think it was, they, they were doing renovations, and they realized that the vast majority of the manor house actually is standing on its original foundation. So it seems there was some sign of backhand deal where the person who bought the house persuaded the people not to demolish it, and, and it was allowed to, to stand. So the, the house at Fergelechen is actually seemingly the house that, that Willem Adrian built? Yes, most of it is, yes. Um, oh. And we even, while we were writing Rogue's Gallery, I reached out to Johan Ferry, Professor Johan Ferry from the Laboratory for Economics of Africa's Past, and he's actually written a few interesting books about South um, Africa's economic traje trajectory and how we're actually better off now than at any time in the past and that kind of thing. And I could recommend those. Um, we wanted to work out how much is um, 24,400 guilders. So he said the best way of doing it is to look at, to compare it to the value of a, a cow. So a cow was worth, 450 stavers, which is another currency unit. So 24,400 guilder was worth 868 cows. Cow today is about 8,500 rand, so that converts to about 7.5 million rand was the whole value of the transaction. And if that seems a bit low, which it does, you know, I mean, you couldn't buy an outhouse at Berkeley yeah. for 7.5 million. Um, that's because basically land wasn't much of a commodity back then. There was like the whole of Africa beyond here and very little had been settled and it didn't have that much value back then. Now that everything's fully settled and, and you know, people are squabbling over one parking van on Clifton Beach, um, yeah, it, it, it would be a lot more than that. But, but you know, seven and a half million is still not nothing. No, for sure. And um, so what happens? So so he goes off to Amsterdam and produces this book. He sort of claims that, you know, like, like all great leaders, he was brought down by a sort of lower class bunch of um, trouble causes, and that he was actually right all along. Um, yes, he says. And it was it was those pesky lower class people who yeah, the, the careful student of history will have observed that under all kinds of governments there are found men among the lower classes dissatisfied with those who hold the reins of government. In that manner, it is often seen that the best men are contrary to their deserts and without any reason most violently accused and libeled. 
and and another cool thing about yeah. this this short explanation this 304 page self-defense is he he includes an engraving of Verkulechen, which we can put up on the website for listeners to have a look at. And so the burghers in their complaint have an engraving of Verkulechen that shows the vast extent of the operation. And like it sort of labels what is grown where and how much. Whereas Van der Stel has an engraving of Verkulechen, which is not completely inaccurate. It, it's but it's from the other side of the building. And it shows the manor house. It shows a few orchards in the foreground. But there's also like a sort of little group of sort of savages. I mean, I guess that's what he would call them. In the front sort of brandishing spears. And in the background are these sort of very foreboding mountains. With these enormous lions roaming around. Um, lions that are almost as big as his house. So he's kind of trying to paint this visual picture that he's got this little house in this absolutely unhospitable place. And yeah, there are a few orchards, but come on, you know, get over it. So, and, and talking about, um, you know, he, he's, he puts in the local population and, and clearly that, you know, that he was possibly under threat from them in some manner. Um, but actually there is an interesting story about him and his friendship with the Raja of Tambura, which was an island off, um, off Jakarta, who this guy was uh, the ruler of that island in Indonesia, and he was sent to the Cape, basically, uh, you know, he was banished to the Cape, and he lived out here. And what is interesting is that Willem Adrian made friends with him. So um, that has always been used as a sign that actually maybe Willem Adrian was was not such a bad chap after all. You know, he could make friends with um, a person of color who was an enemy of the VOC, um, you know, but, and, and that, that story also has some, some interesting implications because as you discovered, he's possibly, well, the claim is that Tambura was ultimately um, one of his descendants was Peter Retief. Um Yeah, I mean, so I think, the thing is that the Raja of Tambora was was a you know royalty, and I think this was the kind of guy Willem Adrian liked. He didn't like the commoners, but someone important, you know, he could get on with and drink tea with. So apparently, yeah, I mean, I don't know about the Peter Teef thing. How true it is? There's a there's a rumor that one of his descendants is Peter Teef. A few other stories about the Raja. So while at Fergelich, and the Raja took advantage of his free time. I mean, he was basically imprisoned on Fergelich, so it was like you know, being imprisoned on the one and only or something. And he transcribed the entire Quran from memory. So this is, you know, to the Muslim people of South Africa, quite an important document, you know, the first African or South African Quran. And he gave it to Villamartan van der Stelf. I'm not sure why. Mistake. Yet. It's never been seen since. So yeah, um, the Raja kept on trying to get sent back to Tambora, but he, he was ignored. And he, yeah, he ended up having a number of children, one of whom may or may not have been eventually had Peter Teef as a grandson. But if he had been sent back to Tambora, his descendants probably would have been devastated, would have been killed by the eruption of Krakatoa in 1815, which um, completely devastated the islands, killed somewhere between 50 and 120,000 people, and caused ash clouds, which traveled as far as London and caused 
brilliantly colored sunsets mm. and twilights for several months in the summer of 1815 in London. Yeah, so I think there's there's some there's something about that cloud and the Battle of Waterloo, which I I can't remember, but one of the reasons why Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo was that the the ground was actually waterlogged. So there is this claim that I believe that that volcano of Tambura was the cause of some severe wet weather around the world and in Europe in particular, and that that was the cause of Napoleon's defeat. But we'll put that in the in the program notes on our website, which we will tell you about at the end of the episode. But what happened to, to get back to our story, what happened to Adam Tuss? How do we know all of these things, you know, and what was Adam Tuss's legacy? Well, Adam Tuss, um, so obviously all the documents ended up in, in the VOC head offices, so those, those are still there, and copies were here because they were actually quite good at record keeping. Um, someone must have, you know, written them off twice. And Adam Tuss kept a diary. One of the reasons it was it was published was as this whole sort of in the apartheid era, they were trying to paint Adam Tuss as a hero. So the um, you know, there's a lot of effort put into showing that he was like our first independent Afrikaner political leader. And and I think that's a bit far fetched. I mean, he he was a hero for the sort of his own economic interests and representing people who were being downtrodden by someone wealthy and and oppressive. But I don't think there was anything about Afrikaner identity in in his what he was doing. He was literally just trying to save his own um, livelihood. And and it's a it's a confusing narrative, but I guess it's one it's one that continued through Afrikaner nationalism. I guess was this idea that there were these oppressive people from from Europe who were trying to kind of control them. They were trying to make them unfree. They were, you know, making decisions that made them unfree and that, that this was the part of the freedom struggle of the Afrikaner people was fighting the the oppressor from from Europe, which, um, you know, is a kind of strange, peculiar narrative, but nevertheless one that sort of... Yeah, well, I mean, it's strange. Point. I mean, Simon van der Stel is also a hero, uh, but Willem Adrian is seen as other for some reason. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange um, people, particularly nationalist movements, choose their heroes. But Adam Tuss does seem to have had no sort of nationalistic inclination. He was just trying to survive yeah, I mean, out here. And he did what he yeah, could I mean, do he had, to survive. Kevin Davey wrote, um, Tuss was no working class hero. No great reforms flowed from his rebellion. The VOC remained in charge for another hundred years. Slavery was only done away with after 140 years, and democracy was a full 280 years distant. So, yeah, there you go. Um, and then, uh, there are a few fun things about Adam Tuss. So, there's one story, but it's not true, that Chateau, uh, that, that Libertas, and then the wine Chateau Libertas, was like a pun of Tuss is free. But um, Tuss did own the farm Libertas, but it was already called Libertas, when he took ownership of it, and that was all before the whole thing happened with Willem Adrian. So that that one's not true, but there are two wines that are named after him. Tassenberg and Um Tass are both named after Adam Tass, and one of the main roads in Stellenbosch is Adam Tass. Um, 
Yeah, so that's Adam yeah. Truss. And then I guess we should talk about what happened to Willem Adrian at his end. So he mm. so he um he published this three hundred and four page book which had all sorts of, you know, wonderful said wonderful things about him. He died in seventeen thirty three in Leiden in Holland. You can see his grave if you would like. I haven't seen it, but I've seen a photograph. He was sixty nine years old. He was a bit of a pariah, but he was a rich pariah. So I think most people knew he was a rascal, but he didn't lose mm. his money. And that's and that's the best kind of pariah that totally. you can be. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be a rich pariah. What I don't understand about, you know, our own Jacob Zuma and his starting of a new party is that why he just doesn't retire to Leiden in Maybe Amsterdam Dubai. and, yeah. uh, you know, live a happy life. Yeah, no, exactly. The, the, the Leiden equivalent. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, just live off the whatever cash no, he's got curious. nothing around i mean never makes any sense to me why why these politicians want to sort of carry on into their 80s but but at least i mean willem adrian seems to have lived a relatively but he, he did he did spend life. a lot of money mm. on that document that it was meant to exonerate himself he could have just not bothered i guess yeah, then the, the last thing we need we should mention is what happened to fairkeleken so we know today that it's a it's a wonderful lovely place but um in 1780 or so, a Dutch sea captain, Johan Splinter Stavorinus, visited the home, and he noted that the fields, gardens, and buildings all bore evident signs of the magnificence and wealth of the founder, who had spent large sums of money on the spot, but everything is now much decayed, as the succeeding proprietors did not possess the same means as Mr. van der Stel to keep it in proper repair. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So a sad end um, to all of that. Um, and really, I guess one of the, the other narratives of corruption is how, you know, these guys spend a lot of money on something and um, it all kind of falls apart in the end. Um, even even the great Cecil Rhodes, um, you know, his memorial ain't looking too good these days. N- noses keep disappearing off his, off his bust. Indeed. So, so that was that was Villa Madrion. Um and what we're going to do in the next podcast. So, the next two podcasts are going to be on a man by the name of Robert Grendon, which has nothing to do with corruption necessarily. But we're going to pick up this idea of corruption with um, Sir George Young, and then a bit of Lord Charles Somerset will will follow. But yeah, if you are interested in our podcasts, yeah, just there's a subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button and you will get a podcast. Hopefully every week. We're going to try and get one out every week. Hopefully you'll listen to us soon. Cheers. Hopefully you'll listen to us soon. Cheers. Hello, this is Matthew Blackman from Secret History. I am just letting you know that... If you like our podcast, you can go to www.secret-history.net to check out more about what we do, who we are. You'll even be able to visit this mysterious thing called our Patreon account. So yeah, check it out. That is www.secret-history.net and You can find lots of things there like reading lists and information about us as writers, where we're going to be, and all those 
exciting things. So check it out.